Thanks, Daryl. Before Dan comes to read the text, I invite you to take out your insert that says the revelation of Jesus Christ on the front of it. We are going to read from Revelation 19, 11 through 21. And as is our custom, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word and stand and be attentive to Dan as he reads for us. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray, and then we'll look at that text more in depth. Lord, what a text that is. Whoa. You give us these vivid images to awaken us, to alert us, to to call our attention to things. And so we pray that we would be alert and attentive to the things you would have us see this morning. I I do think sometimes... In our own more refined age, we sometimes recoil at those, that language of judgment. We're sometimes perhaps even embarrassed at judgment language in the Scripture. May we be comforted, Lord, with the reality that you're not embarrassed of that. You put it there. Uh, and you made it as stark as it is to help us be attentive to it. So help us now, Holy Spirit, in spite of our ability to screen out things that are hard to hear or not communicate things we ought to communicate, do what you do and magnify yourself in this text. In Christ's name, amen. One time, I ran a mile competitively. I told the first service it was 800 meters, but since then I remember that I ran a mile at a fitness competition one time. That's as far as I've ever run competitively. In fact, it's Four times longer than I ever ran otherwise. Uh, I was a sprinter, 400-meter runner, max, coming up all the way. It even, you know, didn't even run farther than that in college. So 
But there are some people who run. I assume there are some 5K runners here. Anybody ever run a 5K competitively here? By show of hands? Nice. All right. I like it. Even some young ones. Very young ones. That's great. Um, how about a half marathon? Okay. You got, I'm, I'm impressed. Now this is the real, this is the, the breaking point. Anybody here, here ever run a full marathon competitively? Okay. Okay. All right. All right. We had several in the first service too. There are, there, there are races longer than a full marathon. There are ultra marathons. Anybody here ever competitively run an ultra marathon? No. In the first service, Rich Wathen ran a 50-mile ultra marathon. Um, so whether Rich is sane or not, you, you know, that's up to you. There are ultra marathons. There are some that are even longer. One of the most well-known, perhaps some, well, many would consider the best ultra marathoner ever, is a man named Scott Jurek. In his biography, Eat and Run, he talks about running the... The Badwater Ultramarathon, which is 135 miles, through Death Valley, which is the hottest place on earth. So it's 131 degrees during the day, and it cools to a mild 100 degrees at night. And so in 2005, I believe, 2006, I can't remember what year it was, he was training, but he hadn't trained well, and he lives in Seattle, which is a very different climate than Death Valley. But uh, he had been sick, he'd been hurt, but he was going to do the 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 bad water marathon anyway. And he said he started, and 60 miles in, he was puking and hallucinating, which isn't, he says also it's not uncommon for ultramarathoners. Um, but then he got to 70 miles, and he writes this, I had just run 70 miles through a place where others had died walking in former times, and I had 65 miles more to go. That time, Death Valley had laid me out flat, and now it was cooking me. My crew was telling me to get up, that I knew they could, I could go on, but I could barely hear them. I was too busy puking, then watching the steam of the liquid evaporate in the circle of light from my headlamp, almost as fast as it splashed down to the steaming pavement. It was an hour before midnight, 105 incinerating, soul-sucking degrees. This was supposed to be my time. This was the point in the race where I had made a career of locating hidden, hidden reso- uh, reservoirs of will, discovering powers that propelled me to distances and speeds others could never match. Not tonight. Could I quit this race and not be a quitter? I thought to myself. <laughs> you've done it before, Rick. One of my crew, Rick, one of my crew members said, you've done it before. You can do it again. I appreciated his optimism and his idiocy. Not moving felt good. It wasn't nearly as shameful as I had imagined. Why go on? Why not rest? I deserved to rest, didn't I? Why shouldn't I rest? Instead, I dry heaved, then rolled onto my back, gazed up at the, and gazed up at the glittering desert sky. I had been a runner for such a long time. What if I couldn't run anymore? If I wasn't a runner, what was I? Then from the desert, a voice, an old familiar voice came. And this is the voice of, his, of Dusty, who's one of his pace runners. So they have several pace runners that run faster, you know, and then they cycle out. I have to clean up some of Dusty's language here. So you're not going to win this race lying on the dirt. Come on, jerker. His name is Scott Jurek. Dusty called him jerker as a friend. Get the heck up. <laughs> it was my old friend Dusty. This made me smile. He almost always made me smile, even when everyone around him was cringing at my pain. 
Get the heck up, Dusty yelled. But I couldn't get up. I, I wouldn't. He said, the leader is out there dying, and you're going you're gonna to take that dude. We're going to take that dude. You're going to reel him in. I looked at my friend. Couldn't he see that I wasn't going to take anyone? He squatted, folded himself uh, until our faces were inches apart, looked into my eyes, and he said, Do you want to be somebody, Jurek? Do you want to be someone? And then he laid, he said, like for 10 minutes like a corpse. And then got up, ran 65 miles, set the course record, and won by over two hours. So Scott Jurek has an internal resilience that I know nothing about. And probably none of us here know nothing about. And the scripture would warn that there is a benefit to that type of resilience, but also a deadly aspect. We are called to be resilient, but in the gospel, resilience does not come from looking inside. It comes from outside. It does not come from looking at ourselves. It comes from looking to another. In the gospel, resilience, a resilient faith, comes from looking to the work and the person of Jesus. And resilience, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, is a key theme, maybe the key application for the people of God. Just listen to the encouragements to the seven churches in the Revelation 2 and 3, which we take to be emblematic of the church in all ages. Just listen to these encouragements. I put them all in the same verb tense to kind of make it make sense. Persevere. Endure patiently. Bear up for my name's sake. Be faithful unto death. Hold fast to my name. Overcome. Persevere. Hold fast. Overcome. Keep my deeds. Overcome. Keep my word. Do not deny my name. Keep the word of my perseverance. Hold fast. Overcome. Right? Over and over again. Different ways of saying, hold on. Endure. Resilient faith. How do we get that faith? Not by looking inside, but by looking outside. As we've already seen in the book of Revelation, we get that faith. We get that resilience of that faith by looking backward to what Christ has done for us. And then in this passage, looking forward to what will come and what he will do based on who he is in his person. Today, we see that, that the vision of Jesus in his justice-bringing return fuels a resilient faith in his people. A vision of Jesus' justice-bringing return. As we've said in our, in our statement of faith, his eventual redemption of all creation, his making things right, his justice-bringing return fuels resilient faith in now in people like you and me. So as we look at this, I want to remind us at the outset that this is still a vision, just because this might be a more familiar vision of a rider on a white horse. You know, maybe you saw the battle of the, the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep, and you have Gan, you know, Gandalf coming down the mountain. Okay, this is just a vision, right? It's, it's like all of Revelation, elevated imagery intended to communicate multifaceted reality to God's people to stir us and our imaginations to a faithfulness and, and pursuit of him. This is a vision of what we might call justice, or the Bible also calls judgment or wrath. All those words mean the same thing in judgment, justice, and wrath. Now, today, we like the word justice. We don't care for judgment and wrath. It means the same thing in this context. Justice is a universal desire of every person who's created in the image of God. Every person, every culture that's developed has systems of justice and uh, ideas of wrong or right that are enforced either by laws or we would say by folkways or mores, social pressure that inclines people to do one thing and not do another. Even 
Even cultures that start as anarchies eventually descend into law and order. You just can't have complete anarchy. You know, you can't, there are some things that eventually you will not be able to do. But we might in this part say, like, why is there so much judgment right here in Revelation? Because we've been talking about judgment this week, last week, the week before that, and guess what next week's about? Judgment, right? Um, Taylor's preaching that one. They say, why so much? Okay, here we have to get a little nerdish for the literary folks among us. Hey, I'm going to tell you why this is. In the second part of Revelation, Revelation 12 through 22, the second half, we're introduced to some characters. If you will, think about characters coming on a stage. First, it is the woman who we said is the faithful, uh, faithful uh, people of God, the woman on earth. And then after the woman comes the dragon, who is Satan, who comes to persecute or to pursue, oppress the woman. So the woman comes on the stage, and then the dragon comes on the stage to persecute the woman. And then the dragon calls forth the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea. The beast of the earth sometimes is called the false prophet. But they come on to do the work of the dragon to persecute the woman. So there's the, the woman, the dragon, and the beast. And then the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth come together to create this culture that persecutes the, the people of God, which is called Babylon, pictured as a prostitute, an alluring, enticing seductress that, that uh, capitalizes on the worst aspects of people and oppresses God's people. So you have on the stage the woman and three persecutors, the dragon, the beast, and Babylon. Okay? But then what happens? Well, we saw a couple weeks ago, Babylon is judged, taken out of the way. Babylon leaves the stage. This week, the beast and the false prophet. This is a, a, a picture of judgment on the beast and the false prophet who are persecuting the woman. They're taken out of the way. Next week, the dragon, Satan, will be taken out of the way. Revelation 21, the bride stands alone with the groom. Revelation 22, the very last chapter of Revelation, Creation lives happily ever after with a bride and a groom. So that's what you have the judgment build up or the, the persecution build up and then one by one, right? So that's why that's where we are. In this passage, we have four names of Jesus revealed that are wrapped around what he does. And I just want to look at those a little bit out of order, but we'll get to all of them. First, we see that Jesus is the one who is called faithful and true. These are divine titles of Jesus. He is faithful and true. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So this is a different white horse than Revelation 6 which is also a conquest but a conquest of a different kind. Who is Jesus? The faithful and true one here. This means he is completely dependable. He is dependable. He will do what he promised to do. So in this grand vision of, of Jesus' return, the first thing the people of God in the first century hear is like faithful and true. And my hunch is there was a collective sigh of relief when they heard that because they were in a very difficult situation. And the call to resilient faith that they receive, that we receive, is a necessary call because life is hard. There are lots of things by which we would, we would fold, and therefore we need to, to which we'd fold, therefore we need to be resilient. The time between the, coming of, the first coming of a Christ and the second coming of the Christ, as many of you know very well, is uncomfortably long. It's uncomfortably long. This chapter is often longer than we want it to be. And sometimes with bearing up under the pressure of this world and under, bearing up under like this the, 
sin in our own life to which we keep failing, the, the, the call, the biblical call, how long, O Lord, can turn into some kind of call that says, will you really come, O Lord? Is this true, O Lord? I mean, we know that sometimes protracted difficulty can lead to doubt and questioning, like, is God going to do what he said he would do? And the scene open, heaven opens, a rider on the white horse, and the first thing they hear is faithful and true. He does what he says he will do. Faithful and true to what? According to this, to bring justice. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, all through the Old Testament, there are these prophecies of the Messiah who will come and restore things. They're cryptic, but the closer you get to Jesus, the more, the more data we have, the more it makes sense. An example of one of these, and this is only one of many, from Isaiah 42, let me just read a couple verses here. Behold my servant, my messianic servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's tender. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He is tender, but he's also strong. So Isaiah 42, the description is, he, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. The way Revelation 19 says it, in righteousness he judges and makes war. It's the same, describing the same thing. Jesus making things right. Making things right, which is also called in the Bible judgment or wrath. Now, we think of wrath, human wrath, is like it's often explosive and angry and unpredictable. Don't let that be preloaded into your understanding of what God's wrath is. God's wrath is, it's not explosive, right? It is surgical, and it is born out of love for his creation. Now, we say that here, and I want to say it again to be clear. The wrath of God is a result of his love for his creation. He makes creation and calls it good, and now it's, there's an intruder, sin, evil, and rebellion that's destroying and defacing creation. What does a good God do? He removes it. God would be a bad God if he did not love his creation enough to remove the sin, evil, and destruction from it. The illustration we often use is a, a cancer surgeon seeks to restore the body by, with precision, removing the cancer from the body. He doesn't do that because he hates the person. He does that because he's a good surgeon. Okay? This is what God is doing. This is what Jesus is doing in bringing justice to the nations. He's making things right. He's removing sin, evil, and rebellion. He does this in two ways. Two ways. Both connected to an animal. If you give me some poetic license. Here, Jesus rides a white horse. What's the other animal we have Jesus riding in the Bible? Anybody know? A donkey. That's right. Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate in two weeks. The beginning of the week, a very humble entrance into Jerusalem. The end of the week, which will end with him hanging on a cross. What's he doing on that cross but taking the sin 
the evil and destruction of his people's lives on himself. He is taking wrath against sin to himself. Two, he is taking the wrath against sin for people who say, I want you to do that for me. For anyone who will look to him and say, I've got a sickness that I can't cure. It's called sin. I'm desperately needy. I can't do anything to sort of uh, to leverage you, Jesus. I can only receive this graciousness that you offered to me, and I fully receive it. I rest, on, I rest on you alone. I receive that. Your life is mine. That's you. Christ rides into Jerusalem for you, for me. He takes wrath for us. He takes wrath and sin is removed for us, from us, or he exercises wrath to remove sin, evil, and rebellion. That's what the white horse is about. So in this final picture, right, Revelation 19, is Jesus' response to the beast and the false prophet and those who refuse, who say, Jesus, I don't want what you've done. I'm betting on me. So in our understanding of Jesus, friends, we have to, we have to see both animals. <laughs> we have to see Jesus, the one who both rides the donkey in humility to the cross and rides the white horse. Either his, he is faithful and true to remove sin, evil, and rebellion from this world. He will do it. One day, it's, we just need to say this, right? He does return to make all things right. And he judges in righteousness. I don't judge in righteousness. I'm kind of stupid sometimes. I'm just, you know, it's like something, I, I kind of Bible, but kind of Roger, you know, and, until the next chapter when I, I see clearly in heaven, until you see clearly in heaven. That's probably why Jesus says, hey, how about you not judge? <laughs> how, about I, how about I do that? You trust me to do that. You don't have to do that. You're totally free of bringing judgment on other people. You're free, right? In fact, don't do it because you're kind of dumb right now. You don't see clearly. I alone judge in righteousness. One day he will judge in righteousness. All selfishness will be gone. All abuse will be gone. All racism will be gone. All sexual sin will be gone. All theft will be gone. All warfare will be gone. All coveting will be gone. All dishonesty will be gone. All hostility, all slander, all propaganda, all gossip, all lying, all impatience, all boasting, all evil will be put away forever and ever and ever. He will do that. And the the picture here is very simple. Either he takes that away for us or we have to deal with that ourselves. I think part of the reason we are uncomfortable with the judgment of Jesus, twofold, I mean, at least two reasons. One, we're pretty comfortable in our life. We don't know what it is to have personal enemies generally beyond middle school, right? So after the first service, two middle school girls came up to me and said, how do you know middle schoolers so well, right? How do you know we had enemies in middle school? Like, well... You get over it, right? You get past that. We don't really have personal enemies. But last week I read from the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who grew up in Croatia. And he said, you know, if you grow up in a land where your wives and daughters have been violated and killed and your husbands and fathers and brothers have been killed, tortured, it's not hard to believe in judgment. In fact, it's pretty easy to believe in judgment. That is right and good. And that someone will make things right one day. 
So I think we're pretty comfortable. It's hard to, like, get our head around the judgment of God sometimes. It's the same for me. Also for us, right, in this culture, we've kind of inherited maybe 80 or 90, 100 years of the, the Christian nation thing where sort of like Western military power and the gospel is kind of like intertwined, and we've got to separate that out. We've got to. That's just propaganda, right? That's just the beast of the earth supporting the beast of the sea all over again. So we got it. We just got to separate that out, okay? We're talking about Jesus who sees perfectly, unlike me, unlike you, making things right because he loves this creation and he gives opportunity for it to be made right in him or he'll make it right on others. He is faithful and true to do that. He won't not do that. He is also called the word of God. Look at verse 13. Let's come back to verse 12 in a second. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So he's called the Word of God. This is Jesus taking on himself the same name as Scripture, which is also called the Word of God. Historically in church history, we've said Jesus, Jesus is the revelation of God incarnated. The Bible is the revelation of God inscripturated. So one is the Word of God incarnated. One is the Word of God inscripturated. But what we're saying is we can't separate out the Word of God, Jesus, from the Word of God, the Scripture. We can't pull those two things apart. Now, there is a move in more progressive forms of Christianity to do that very thing, to pull apart the Jesus of the Bible from the Scripture. And I've had people tell me, like, well, I'm not comfortable sometimes because, you know, we, we don't worship the Bible. We don't want to worship the Bible. I say, okay, true, but I don't even know anybody that worships the Bible. Usually I think that's just code for the hard things we don't want to deal with of the Bible. It's like, well, we don't want to worship the Bible. We don't want to take it too seriously. We can't, look, the only way to know Jesus, the only way to know Jesus is through the Word of God. The only way to know the Word of God is through the Word of God. How, what else are we going to know? Like, I just feel like Jesus is like this. Okay, then you got Seven billion Jesuses now, right? There's one way to know Christ, where he's chosen to reveal himself in and through the Scripture. Now, if we come to the Scripture and we don't meet the living Christ in the Scripture, then we're not reading the Scripture right. Like, we're missing it, right? You can't separate out the Word of God, the Bible, from the Word of God, Jesus. We want to submit to both of those things. So we can only meet Jesus through the Scripture, but we have to meet him in the Scripture. He wears a robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? Okay. I don't have time for this. Isaiah 63, it's a quote from Isaiah 63 of the justice bringer wears a robe dipped in blood. Now, there's a huge debate about is this blood that of his enemies or himself, right, on the cross? Question, answer, I don't know. I kind of like both. I like answers like that. like both, you know. Depends who you are, I suppose. Uh, So we're going to, you know, read some commentaries on that, write a paper, give it to me, help me understand it. Okay. That's who he is. What, how shall he do what he does? How does Jesus bring judgment? Answer, from this text, he speaks. And he brings judgment by himself. He speaks and he does it 
alone. Look at verse 15. First of all, he speaks. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then down in verse 21, those who have aligned themselves with the beast against him were slain by this same sword that comes from out of his mouth. Now, do we, we like, does Jesus really have a sword coming out of his mouth? Guys, this is an image, right? It's a vision communicating something. What's it communicating? It's communicating that the speaking voice of Jesus judges the world. The speaking voice of Jesus judges the world. The Word of God, who speaks the Word of God, according to Hebrews 4, that Word of God is like a sharp, double-edged sword that lays forth motives and reveals what's true. It's also the instrument by which Jesus brings judgment. When God speaks, stuff happens. It's not uncommon now for, my youngest is 17, and because he's the fifth one, you know, by the fifth t- kid, your parenting is like really just ha- barely hanging on, especially when they're almost gone. So, like, our TV watching has really expanded. Like, so we may even find ourselves watching a movie during the week, you know, Josh and I. And uh, don't tell my other kids. Two older ones were here in the first service, so I had to change the illustration. Um, but he loves to watch movies with the lights out. I do not love to watch movies with the lights out because I fall asleep. And, uh, and this is so bright. And so I can deal with it for a while. But like 10 minutes in or 15 minutes into the movie, the lights are out. If I want them to be on, if I said the words, let there be light, what happens? Nothing. Maybe Joshua's like, what? Why are you saying that? That's what. So if I declare, let there be light, not a thing happens. Now I could say, Joshua, would you please get up and turn on the lights? And probably that will happen. But even, my, my words didn't do it. It just set something in motion, and another person's agency had to get involved, and instrumentally I could speak internal lights. If I say, let there be light, nothing happens. If God says, let there be light, what happens? Light exists. It's a non-contingent thing. Like, light is contingent on God saying, let there be light, there's light. He speaks, it is. He speaks, it exists. He speaks judgment, it's judgment's done. And when we step back and look at the battle that comes at the end of this thing, it's not really much of a battle. Yes, the beast and the armies are arrayed. We'll see that in a second. But it's kind of anticlimactic because he speaks and it's over. (laughs) Why is that? Well, who who did we think we were dealing with here? Has humanity mistaken Jesus' patience for weakness or uninvolvement? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it has, it does, it will, to terrible consequences for itself. He speaks. Does it through a word, and then he does it by himself. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From Revelation 17, and the rest of Revelation, we know that that is the followers of Jesus arrayed in the righteous robes of Christ, the priestly robes, following him on horses. And then what do they do in the rest of the passage? Nothing. They watch. Jesus fights alone. He stands alone for his people as they watch, and he accomplishes his purposes. He stands alone and fights for his people alone. Some of us need to know that even right now. You have something in your life that is bigger than you, like I have no idea how I can see myself through this. I have no resources. I'm deadly tired. I have, I'm 
just sick to death of this thing. What can happen? I have no resources. Jesus fights alone for his people. Being helpless and weak is a great place for Jesus to fight for you. Okay? What about those on earth in Christ when this day comes? Okay? At this point, we're going to run up against something in our culture, in our Christian culture, that has gained prominence. I mentioned this several weeks ago. Some of you are from this background. I totally understand that. I'm from this background. I totally just understand I'm talking about my own upbringing here that I, I'm pretty convinced is incorrect at this point. Okay? So if you feel like I'm pressing on you, I'm, I'm just talking about myself. Okay? Uh, there has been developed in Christianity only since the 1830s, not officially since the 1870s, an idea of what we would call now a secret rapture. The rapture. Anybody heard of this? The rapture? So, people raising their hand like, I'm not sure I'm raising my hand because what's he going to say? Okay, um, the rapture is like all of a sudden people are gone. So the people in Christ are raptured, right? And there's a pile of clothes just laying on the ground. People are gone. I guess, I don't know why the rapture has to be naked, but like the clothes are left behind, right? The clothes are left behind and the unbelievers are left behind, right? So in the mo- there's the movies that, and the books. There's still another Left Behind movie. It just came out last year. Unbelievable. Um, I don't know if it's still Nicolas Cage or not, really just driving that career into the ground. But um, airplanes are crashing out of the sky because people have been raptured, and you got the stories, y'all, like, I remember when I was a kid and I couldn't find my parents. Like, had they been raptured? I don't know. Um, and so the idea of the secret rapture, there's a rapture, and the God's people go to heaven, and then okay, all hell breaks loose on earth for a while, and there's a thousand years, and Jesus comes back. Oh, okay. I don't think that's, I want to relieve you of the burden of being confused by that and believing it, okay? This is rooted in a passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, which is on the back of your bulletin. Now, let me say, the, the, the movements that have promulgated this are faithful, like it's well-meaning. It's not a criticism of the faithfulness of these movements. 1 Thessalonians 4, put on the back of your bulletin just for set time's sake, we're going to go to the bolded part. This is where the, the, the locus classicus of this doctrine is. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And it's that phrase there, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You might say, well, that certainly seems like a rapture, right? Getting zipped out of here and meeting Jesus in the clouds. Okay. First of all, the clouds, can, it just means sky, right? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean some nimbulous cloud, nimbulous cloud somewhere out there. Um, nimbus cloud. That word, to meet the Lord in the air, okay, just a little nerd out for a second, is a Greek word, apontesis. It has a meaning, it's a, it's, a, it's a noun for a meeting, a particular type of meeting. The type of meeting where a, a, a dignitary is coming into a town and people come out of the town to meet the dignitary, to greet him, and then join his train or his parade behind him as he goes into the town. That's an apontesis. That's a meeting, that kind of meeting. This verb, this noun occurs three times in the New Testament. Once here, once in Matthew 25, 6, 
which is the parable of the ten virgins waiting on the bridegroom, and some don't have their lamp lit, and they hear the bridegroom is coming, and some go out to meet him, and they will come back into the town for the festival. The other place is Acts 28, 16, where Paul is on his way to Rome, and people come out to a place about 30, the three taverns, I think it was called, about 30 miles outside of Rome to meet him and then go back into Rome with him. Apontasis. What is this a picture of in 1 Thessalonians 4? At the return of Christ, those who are still in Christ on this earth, even if there's an intense, more intense spiritual war, are they, they received by Christ and join that train, and they're in that army right there. No secret rapture, no seven years of tribulation, and thousand years of this, a million years of that, whatever, whatever. They just join Jesus as one of the armies watching what he does. That's all. It's not as good a movie script, but it's better Bible. Trust me. So they do it. They watch. The saints, you, if you're in Christ, the time Jesus returns, you will join that train of watchers to see him fight for his people. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He will, verse 15, he will tread the, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. King of kings and lord of lords. So it's like, that's why we're saying the kingliest king and the lordliest lord. So in the Old Testament, there's a book called the Song of Songs. It's a love song between a husband and wife, also echoing Christ's love for the church. It's like the, the best song of all songs, hence Song of Songs. In the middle of the temple, there's a place called the Holy of Holies, like the most holiest of all the holy places. By Jesus being called King of Kings, it's not saying he's one king among many. He is the ultimate king over all. He is the one who, whom all the other kings should have bowed but didn't. By saying he's the Lord of Lords, he is the lordliest of all to whom all people should pledge allegiance but don't. What does he do? It says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. The, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God is a, it's a sign, it's an image for complete judgment. Like after this, there's nothing else. Like after grapes go through a winepress, they're not... Wrong. Something's wrong. My series like, uh-oh, something's wrong. Um, <laughs> um, Sirius never made a comment to me when I'm preaching that, that precisely before. So um, when grapes go through a wine press, there's nothing left of the grapes. That's all this is saying. Judgment is final, and he is the one that treads it out. Not you, not me, but the king of kings and lord of lords. Because he is lord. And he has the name in two places, on his robe and on his thigh. I think what's getting at is this. The robe would be seen by all. But why, why, so basically, why does Jesus have a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I think it's this, this. In the Jewish tradition, the way you pledged fealty or service to one was they would be sitting on a rock or a chair or bench or something. And you get down on one knee, place your hand on their knee, on top of the knee, or your hand under their thigh, and pledge allegiance to that person. It's in the book of Genesis. So I think perhaps what this is saying, some see it on his robe. Everybody sees it, King of kings and Lord of lords, and it's a terror to them. Those who pledge allegiance to him, it's a joy to them. Oh, I see that. 
I see that up close. Finally, the King of kings and Lord of lords has come. And therefore, because he is the king and the Lord, the battle plays out predictably. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, it's not trying to be intentionally graphic like a Hollywood movie. It's just saying, this is done. The, this is the last thing in the battle. There's not going to be anybody to drive these, these uh, carnivorous birds away. That's it. It's prophetic imagery from Ezekiel as well. No question about the victory. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So if this is a movie, this is the pinnacle. The battle lines are drawn, right? It's the orcs marching on Helm's Deep. It's the British with a standoff against William Wallace. It's the, you know, it's Henry V. It's the, it's the battle for Mopoli with the Persians in the 300, right? This is it. And this is the place in all the movies where there's a, a rousing speech, right? They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, you know, and they go into battle. He who sheds his blood with me this day will be my brother. A new age of freedom has dawned, and many years from now, everyone will know that 300 Spartans lived and died for this age, right? Or Aragorn famously to Theoden, ride out with me. Theoden asks, for glory and honor. And Aragorn's like, no, for your people. Here is, after this pinnacle, here's what we have. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in his presence had come, uh, in his presence had done the signs by which it deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the uh, lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Why so anticlimactic? There's no battle. It's done. Why? He is king of kings and lord of lords. Not one among them. He is king of kings and lord of lords. This is the one who is our Jesus, friends. With that same power and earnestness, he dealt with our sin at the cross. Now, there's one name that we didn't talk about. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So this name written, uh, written that no one knows but himself. There's a picture of wisdom. He has eyes that see everything. Incredible authority. He has many diadems. So if you remember, the, the dragon and the beast had ten. How many does Jesus have? Many. I mean, John can count to ten. He's like, more than that. All of them, right? Why? He's king of kings. He has all the crowns. And then there's this name mysteriously written, and I think we're supposed to take that written on his forehead because that's where the names are written all through the book of Revelation. What is written on his forehead? What is this name that nobody knows but himself? I'll tell you what it is. Something that only Jesus knows. We don't know. That's actually great news. Here's why. There are things about Jesus that are yet mysterious to his people. 
He is infinite, and we are finite. Even on that last day, when we see him, there will be things about him that we don't yet know. That means, for one thing, as we saw last week, we're built for relationship with the living God. He makes himself available to us. That means it's possible to know more about Christ and know Christ more tomorrow than we do today. And in one year, than we do tomorrow. And in 10,000, thousand years, we will still be learning about Christ because he will still be infinite and we will still be finite. He makes himself available to us and says, you can learn of me for eternity and it will only get better and deeper and more joyful as you go. The old theologian Jonathan Edwards conceived of heaven as being ever-increasing joy in God at ever-increasing speed. Maybe it's also ever-increasing depth knowledge of our creator and our redeemer at ever-increasing speed forever and ever. He, he has, he's generous, he gives of himself, but he's infinite. That means there's always more for him to give and always more for us to receive. His intention for all of history is to do us well, to bring joy into our life. Right now in this chapter, it comes through a resilient faith that looks back at what he's done at the cross and forward to his return and anticipates that day when we will move into fullness. Right now, we are privileged to taste a little bit of that joy and fullness in the communion table. That's part of the reason we come here every week. And we say, remember, it teaches us to look back to what he's done, look around to what he does in us now and how he serves us from heaven, and look on to that day. If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to the table, looking all three of those directions. I'm going to pray.